morning, church. Good to have everybody here, whether they're here mourning over the loss of leaving Arizona or they're here thinking about the snow that we've just received this morning, but uh, it's a good day to be in church. It's a good day to obey Christ and be together as we continue to dig, dig into God's Word. We're once again going to be in our foundational verses this morning in Luke 6 out of the New American Standard. If you want to follow me there, Luke 6. And we are continuing our series about the master's men, about the story, the introduction to these apostles of Christ that have been called out from disciples, that have been called out from the world to carry on the gospel message. And we come studying these men to see who they really were, to see who they are, but more importantly, to learn from God what God has told us about these men, that we may ask the question of God, what do you have for me to change my life? Because the lives of these men were all about change as we go through the whirlwind of the New Testament of Gospels as Christ calls them and then trains them and equips them. And the same is true of us that we have been called out of the world of sin in salvation through Christ's forgiveness and he is the mediator between us and God. And once he calls us, he doesn't just call us to suddenly be, boom, Christian and then just sit there stagnant, right? He calls us the entire rest of our life to go through the same process the apostles went through in a, a mere two years of following Christ and being trained to see how God would change us into the men and women that he would have us to be. So as we study this morning, ask your questions or ask the question between you and God of, as we hear about these men and how God changed them of, God, how would you change me? Because the, the truth of the Bible is it has to be personally applied, right? The truth of Christianity is it's not just about salvation. After salvation, it's about sanctification. As we spend our life getting closer and closer and closer to being Christ-like and putting the world further and further behind us. And I don't know about you, but as I dig into this, the, the more I study it, the more I'm convicted because I'm looking at these guys who they went through this intensive training for literally only about two years and I've got like 40 years under my belt as being a Christian, and I'm not even close to the level that they were at. So I'm glad that God is a patient God, <laughs> a long-suffering God, a persevering God, because I am still, perhaps like you, that work in progress, that God didn't put me on the fast treadmill of change, but fortunately for me on a little bit slower treadmill of change. So maybe you're there too. So let's ask this question. Have you ever had a special event where you're going to meet someone that's almost bigger than life? I mean, maybe it's a great leader, maybe it was a Nobel Prize winner, maybe a humanitarian, a, an Olympian, some sports figure, a Hollywood actor, someone that was kind of elevated above everyone else in the world. Have you ever had that experience where you've got to meet that person and you're all kind of like, ooh, oh, this is awesome. Well, that's what we're looking at this morning is we are going to meet a very special person, a VIP if you want to call it. We've already been introduced to him, but it's in the person of the Apostle Paul. And I have shared in to my own dismay that oftentimes I have painted Paul as this... Do you mean Paul or Peter? Peter, I'm sorry. Peter, 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 Peter. Peter Pumpkin Eater. Gotta get it right. Pray for the pastor. It's a Sunday morning. There's a spiritual battle going on. But we're introduced to Peter, the head apostle, in the group of the 12 as we looked at last week and we see that Peter God made him into a leader 
But it took that two years. And we meet Peter in this ooh-ah moment because of the change that God did in Peter's life. And hopefully we can see the change that God did in our life. So why is Peter this VIP? We'll start off when Jesus called him, when he was Simon, when he was gathering that net of fish, there wasn't anything special about him. He was common, he was ordinary, he was just a working class guy. And that's where a lot of us are, right? We live our daily lives, our daily routine, just one day at another. Sometimes they go fast and sometimes they go really slow, right? But God is calling us in those moments. But we see what God did in Peter's life is he took him from this common, ordinary person to being a leader in the church, the head guy of the apostles. And like I said, I often have painted Peter in a almost a negative, downplayed position where he makes these sporadic, goofy decisions. But what we see is that that was God's training field for Peter. Peter was the leader of the apostles. In all the Gospels in the book of Acts, when you read about the, the, the segments of the, of the disciples, or excuse me, the apostles, as God breaks them up and speaks to them, Peter is always listed first, which symbolically puts him in first above the apostles, right? Not only that, Peter was in that most intimate group of the apostles with Jesus. And in Matthew 10, Jesus calls Peter the protos, or the first, indicating him as the leader of the group. So although Peter has these crazy, crazy moments, God uses that to make him into the leader as, uh, that he wanted him to be, as we'll see today. And not only that, the apostles are so important that we looked at last week that in Revelation 3, the Bible speaks of the names of the 12 apostles being written on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, or me. I mean, I can walk down this hall and on one of the doors, I have a plaque that says, John Porter. I've been elevated on a door. Woohoo! Right? You ever had that, that desk plaque or that wall plaque or you get an award with your name on it and you're like, woohoo! Well, that is nothing in comparison to God saying that I am going to write your name on the foundation stone of the new Jerusalem. Now, to me, that's VIP. To me, that's elevated. To me, we see that God did something in this man of Peter from his beginning to the end that radically changed, and God acknowledged that, that he was good and faithful, an example for us to follow. So, let's look at some of these men a little bit, then get specifically into Peter. Here's what's crazy about the apostles, as we've shared. They were either ordinary men, they were outcasts, like in the tax collector, or they were both ordinary and outcast. There was nothing special about these men. But what stood out about these men was they were willing to do one thing where others wouldn't. They were willing to follow Jesus even when hard things were spoken, as we'll get into. They were willing to be rebuked, sometimes in private, sometimes in front of the other 12, and sometimes in public, and to take that rebuking and use it as a stepping stone to draw closer to Christ instead of being indignant and proud and arrogant and saying, well, who are you to tell me what is going on? I mean, there's a first practical application. When you are rebuked by Christ and convicted of a character trait in your life, how do you respond? Are you angry that suddenly now it's out in the open and you've been busted 
as to say? Do you become indignant and kind of turn your back like, well, you can't tell me what to do. Well, you think what you think and I'll think what I think, right? These men were willing to be rebuked by Jesus in a multitude of ways over two years and take that to build that stepping stone to be a leader in God's church. So next practical application for us. When your character traits are found out to not be so godly as you thought they were, can you be like the apostles and say, Lord, you are doing something in my life that I need to change? We remember Peter, before he was Peter, was who? Simon. Simon. And Simon never really went away. But Simon was the symbolic name when Christ would look at him and say, you are in the world. You are that old man, that old sinful nature, that before I called you, you were living life for yourself. You were your own greatest fan. You were that worldly man. Even though you were seeking God, you were a worldly man. And he calls him Peter when? When he's actually understanding the things of God and allowing God to change him into whom God had him to be. So we see these men as examples of God calling us. And in a very real way, we can look in this morning and say, well, this morning, are you Simon or are you Peter? That's the question for us. We are taking these 12 apostles out of the beautiful stained glass windows of church cathedrals and we're putting them back on common ground where they began. Because the common ground was not only where they began, the common ground was where they shared the gospel, wasn't it? We don't see any of these men building huge cathedrals or, or anything like that. We see these men ministering and going from town to town and city to city to individual to individual, ministering with the gospel of Christ. It was a common ministry to bring the gospel to where people truly lived. As Christ came to them and called them out, Christ has come to you and I and called us out of a sinful life. And when God sends us out, he calls us back into the common to meet people where they are at in their sin, in their struggle, in their striving to find God. So that we may introduce them to Jesus Christ and call them out into eternity in heaven. So let's read. As Jesus didn't call the qualified, but he qualified the called. Luke, Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spoke, spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, as we've studied, and as you study the Word of God, one thing you'll find out about these men that, that always intrigued me is that before Jesus, they were actually seeking for truth. They were seeking for purpose in their life. They were seeking for God. We see a number of these apostles that when they were disciples were under the tutelage of John the Baptist. And you remember the story of John the Baptist when Jesus appears? John has already learned the lesson of what it means to serve Christ and is not trying to gather more and more people to himself. But when Jesus appears in the scene, basically John says, go and follow him because he's the one. Now, as a pastor, that's a crazy thing, right? 
Because as a pastor, you want to get more and more people. But if there's something better out there, like Jesus, it's like, hey, we've been doing good okay, but there's the real deal. You need to follow Jesus. So we see a number of the, the apostles when they were disciples, that they were seeking Jesus by being where John the Baptist was and listening to his messages. We also see Matthew, the tax collector, that if you read through his gospel writings, he is constantly mentioning the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, how the Old Testament fulfills the New Testament. Or not, no, backwards, how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. Which means that even though Matthew was an outcast tax collector hated by both Romans and by the Jews, he was seeking God, and we know that because there was so much enrichment of the Old Testament and his gospel writings that he had to know and study the Old Testament to have that in there, right? Because you can't give what you don't have, right? So we know that Matthew, even though a tax collector and outcast, had been deeply studying the Old Testament of the time because it's woven so beautifully in his gospel messages and how it relates to the New Testament and Christ's new covenant. So these men were somehow seeking truth in God. Other than that, these were the facts about them. They were not prominent in society. They were working class men. They were not prominent in religion. None of them were really serving in key positions in a synagogue. They were not prominent in politics. In fact, some of them, like Simon the Zealot, was, an, was basically a terrorist against the, the government. They were not prominent in education. We know amazingly little about these 12 men except for what the Gospels tell us about them. We don't have any kind of written biography about their life or what happened, how they grew up, how God called them. We don't have any of that kind of stuff about where they were born, what they did, their, their family uh, genealogy and their tree. We know a little bit about some of their employment, but we don't have much information whatsoever that would say, these 12 men qualify to be apostles for Christ. And the reason for that is this, they were almost nobodies. In our day's modern society, they were just another number, another person out there trying to muddle through daily life. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's extremely encouraging. Because do you know the end of the story of what God did in these 12 men? Where he took them from nothingness to somethingness for his glory? I look at that and I think, my goodness, if God can do that with these unordinary, uneducated, unpolitical, unspiritually religious men, my goodness, what could he do through you and I? If we are like them and they are willing they are submissive, and they were open to the training and the discipline that Jesus wants to bring into our lives for our good. So let's break down again and look at Simon, who became Peter. Simon is the most dominant of the 12 apostles, and he's also the preacher of the 12, as we get to Acts and Pentecost. In, Ma in Matthew 6, 14, it says, there is Simon who Jesus also named Peter. Now, Simon was, of course, we know, a fisherman from the Sea of Galilee. We do know this about him, that he was born in the town of Bethsaida, along with his brother Andrew. They grew up in Dad's fishing business, and they eventually moved to Capernaum, which was one of the major cities on the North, of, North Sea of Galilee. We also know, as we talked about last week, a little bit this morning, that, si that Jesus would refer to Simon as Simon when? When he was living a worldly life? 
when his thought life was in the world sense, and he would call him Peter when he was actually understanding the new covenant and the ways of Jesus Christ. Jesus also called Peter the rock, but not because that's who he was, because we know who Simon was, right? He was this vacillating guy back and forth, always spontaneous stepping out, sometimes where he shouldn't make reactionary decisions all the time, those knee-jerk decisions. But Jesus called him the rock because that is who Jesus was creating him to be. He wasn't there yet, but in essence, Jesus kind of gave this little insight that you are going to be my rock, the solid one within the church that is stable, that is firm, that is real. And that's so ironic and funny because we look at the life of Peter when Jesus called him. That is exactly what? Opposite of who, Pete, who Simon was. Exactly opposite. So that said, what can God do in your life and my life? Simon was a vacillating, brash, bold, impulsive, self-confident, weak man. But God shaped him into being a leader. And it was God's task to shape Simon into being Peter the sole responsibility on Simon to become Peter was to be willing, to be available, to withstand some of the rebuke and the discipline that Jesus gave him, and to continue to draw near to Christ. Now last week we started off about how God made a leader in Peter. We want to look at that again real quick. There were several things, three things that God needed to make a leader, and they apply to us. So the first one was the right raw material. Peter had to have the right raw material in life for God to change him and make him the leader that he was. And that first material was, do you remember what it was? Inquisitiveness, curiosity. The Bible tells us if we do not ask, we do not, what? Receive. Peter was always asking. In fact, my little picture in my own mindset is that sometimes Jesus had to hold Peter at bay saying, I'll answer that in a minute. I have to heal this person, okay, right now. I've kind of got to do some ministry and then I'll answer your question. Peter was inquisitive and wanted to know about God and the kingdom of heaven. The second thing was initiative. Initiative to step out and try out what God was teaching them, to test the waters per se. To go out when Jesus said, walk on the water, or when he calls out to Jesus saying, if you want me to walk on the water, Lord, call me out. And when Jesus called him, he was willing to take the initiative to step out in faith. And the third thing was involvement. We looked last week at the fact that as Christians, we are not couch potato sideline fans. As Christians, we are in the game, right? We are involved, whether it's in church or in ministry or whatever we're doing, we are involved. And Peter had all three of those qualities within his life as we looked at last week. This morning we look at the second thing that Peter needed to have his life to become a leader, and that was the right experience. Because the experience shapes the raw material. And then the third thing we'll get to next week is the right character or the right virtue. Now I think God actually makes leaders that are born but that doesn't mean they become good leaders. Because someone who is born in essence with the right raw materials can go good or can go which way? Can go bad. And it all depends on the submission 
to training and discipline just like an athlete. Why does an athlete put themselves under a coach? Why does an athlete put themselves under a group, a rigid training exercise? Why do they do that? To become better. Most Americans are the opposite, right? December 26th, we sign up for a year's worth of health club membership, right? Because we're going to what? We're going to get in shape. And by January 15th, most of us have stopped, right? We're done. <laughs> we don't have time. That's a nice good excuse. We just can't do it. It's too hard. I mean, I literally sweat. I'm out of breath. And that's where in the right experiences where Peter allowed himself to be under the discipline and the training of God in Jesus. And they keep pursuing. That's what makes the difference. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Peter had the right raw material. But Peter could have gone AWOL and totally the wrong way. But God shaped Peter through experiences. So we take that fact that God shapes Peter in his raw material through experiences. God has placed raw materials in your life and my life of who he wants you and I to be down the road. Just like Peter, right? He has blessed you in salvation with spiritual gifts. He's filled you with the Holy Spirit. He's given you these raw materials, these qualities, these traits, these abilities, this mindset for a reason. And the question for practical application is this. God, how do you take that and what do I need to do to make you move that in the right direction instead of the wrong direction? How do I come under your discipline and your training and take these experiences that I'm going through in life and see them in your light to how you're molding me into something good? Now, as for Peter, in two years, he faced, or faced some pretty dramatic, earth-shattering, life-changing experiences, and we're going to break a couple of those down this morning. But here's my encouragement. God has built into you, while you were yet in your mother's womb, raw materials of who he created you to become. And you and I come to God like common men and women, just like the disciples did, in our commonness and our ordinariness, with all of our past, good and bad. And from that point on, God calls us under his discipline, under his training, to become who he created us to be. And again, our call is to see how God is taking the experiences in our life and trying to direct those in a positive direction so that we don't go the other way. And this is where things get real. Because in our experiences of life, just like what Peter went through, they can either mold us and make us more the man or woman of God, or they can, what? Break us. They can break us to the point where we're bitter, we're angry, we're defiant. We see that all the time in the world, right? Of people who are confronted with who they are, and they go the opposite direction. They become angry and defiant and who are you to tell me what to do and how to live my life? Why are you sitting so high in the judgment seat of life? If we don't allow the experiences of our life to mold us to Christ like us, they can break us and cause us to be bitter and angry. And when we become bitter and angry, we either become super outspoken or we go the opposite direction and just become completely apathetic. I just don't care anymore. Can you relate with that? Have you been to those places in life where you either fight back, fight or flight, 
or you're just like, yeah, do whatever. I don't care anymore. So this is important for us. So I won't read it, but if you want to turn back to John 6 and read through some of that, John 6 is one of the key chapters in the ministry of Jesus as he starts out in his, his public ministry. And we come to the place where he's feeding the 5,000, which we know in good biblical study that the 5,000 meant there were how many men there? 5,000 men, right? Which meant what? There are also probably wives and children, so there could have been 15 to 25,000 people there actually, right? Because the Bible only counted the men. So there's a lot of people here. And they take one little boy's lunch, a few fish and a few loaves of bread, and Jesus multiplies them and gives them to the 5,000 until not only they were satisfied, but there's more left over, right? Cool miracle. Everyone's kind of, ooh, oh, that's awesome. I like that part. But here comes the hard part. In that feeding of the 5,000, Jesus does something that we just partook of this morning that challenges the faith of a lot of the disciples. Disciples being who? What does a disciple mean? A follower. They're not apostles yet. They're disciples. They're following Christ, but they have not been given a specific ministry or purpose yet in life. So Jesus does something that totally stirs the pot in their mental understanding of what God should be and what true Christianity is. And do you know what that is? After that feeding of 5,000, he says, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, we know as Christians, we've kind of been desensitized to that, right? And we're like, oh yeah, that's talking about communion. That's an easy one. But put yourself in the place of these early disciples of Christ. This man feeds some 20,000 people miraculously. You're seeing him doing all these great things. John the Baptist is saying, follow him, follow him, follow him. And then Jesus comes out and says, if you want to follow me, that's great. But you, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, how do you take that? You're like, whoa. I don't know. If, I mean, what kind of church is this, right? What kind of theology is going on here? Wouldn't that rock your world a little bit? It rocked their world because over half of the disciples left. We read down in verse 56, it says, As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. Here is Jesus with the first church split. Right? He had a divided congregation. He came up as the pastor. He said something and half the church said, Oh no, we're out of here. We're going to go do something else. So Jesus looks to the twelve after Jesus watches half of his congregation walk away in the very church first split, and he says, uh, do you not want to go also? Now again, to catch this, because we're desensitized to it, because we know that the bread and the juice are symbols of Christ's body broken and his blood for, for forgiveness in what we take in communion. But for these guys, it was something radically new. And Jesus speaks and makes this comment, Half the congregation says, uh-uh, now you're getting weird on us, buddy. We're out of here. They leave. Jesus waits till they're walking away, and you can see this huge mass of people that were once disciples walking away from Jesus, going to look for something else religious now to fill their lives. There's a few still remaining there, and Jesus looks over at the 12 who are probably standing right by him and says, hey, don't you guys want to go also? It's an open invitation to say, now's your chance to what? Walk away and leave. 
Go find that religion of your own making. Go get your ears tickled because that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to present the truth to you. It was a tense moment. It was a tense experience. Imagine yourself being there. What would you do? How would you respond? Would you be like, okay, maybe there's a little bit more to this. Maybe I need to spend a little time here and actually see what Jesus is saying. Maybe I'm not quite understanding. Maybe I missed something. Or maybe you're just like, a little bit too much spirit filling here. We got to move on. I mean, this happens all today in a modern church, doesn't it? You have your first Baptist church. Then you have your real first Baptist church. Then you have your Southern Baptist church. Then you have your Northern Baptist church, your Eastern Baptist church. Then you have your first Northern Eastern Baptist church, right? We have church splits and everyone goes off to make their own church. Because something happened or the pastor said something that, well, you don't get no second chance. We're not going to seek to understand what you're saying or doing. We're just going to make a decision now. Impulsive, reactionary, uh-uh. I'm not going to investigate. You said it. I heard it. I'm out of here. Happens all the time. So when Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, Hey, do you guys want to go also? Here's what happens with Peter. He looks up and it says, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Your words of eternal, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In my own work mind, here's what I think happened. They see this happening. Jesus makes the statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Half leaves. They're watching the crowd go. They're walking and walk out. Jesus turns to them and says, don't you want to go either? And Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. I think after that, Peter's jaw dropped. What did I just say? Where did that come from? And I think that because of this. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say they am? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to tell Peter this, Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Have you ever had a moment where you're there, maybe you're witnessing to someone, or you're doing something, you're dealing with a family member, a church situation, and you're praying because it's, it's, it's not going well, and all of a sudden something comes out of your mouth, you do something, you're going, whoa, where did that come from? Well, if it's a spiritual thing, then it's from God. You see, what was happening here is Jesus is thinning the herd between the sheep and the goats. He's causing people to make a decision. There are so many people in life that don't want to make decisions, right? They want to waffle kind of in that medium ground. And Jesus says, uh-uh, <laughs> we ain't playing that game. You've got to make a decision. And in that moment, this wasn't Simon. It says he was Peter. And Peter said, you are the Christ. Where will we go? In that moment, because his heart was willing to follow God, even in a difficult, hard situation, he was willing to pursue and seek God more, even though he didn't quite understand. Because of that willingness, God spoke to him and gave him the words to say. And that's pretty cool. 
You see where God uses this experience to begin to develop Peter? That if you just trust in God, even when things are hard and you don't understand Him and you don't understand why it's going the way it is, if you continue to seek God and trust Him, God will give you the wisdom. We looked at several weeks ago. The Bible's pretty clear. Hey, kids, if you don't have wisdom, if you're lacking, all you got to do is what? Ask. And it will be what? Given. There are hard experiences that God allows us to be in to see if we will continue to ask and seek God's will instead of tuck tail and run the other way or throw our hands in the air like you just don't care. Right? These experiences like what Peter went through shape us. And sometimes they cause us and call us to make a decision, a defining moment in life decision of do I truly follow God or am I going back to what I know? Those are defining moments in life where decades happen. You see, Peter needed to know that when he sought God, God would give him a divine message. God would give him the words to speak just as Jesus had promised him. Because Peter was beginning to realize how unqualified he was. I mean, here you are. Put yourself in his position. You're walking around Jesus. He's healing people, casting demons out. He's doing these great things. He's calling the religious leaders out. And he says, now I want you to do this. Oh, I, I'm not qualified. I know. I mean, how many people in God's kingdom that did great things because of Christ for his glory, because of God for his glory, were unqualified? I mean, Moses even outright said it. Lord, I'm not qualified. Call my brother Aaron. Joseph said it. You want me to go back and talk to my brother? Are you serious? Here's the point. All these individuals are so unqualified to do ministry. They were willing, they were submissive, and they were truly seeking God. And in a hard, defining moment of decision, they said, God, I will follow you. I will not run away. Even if it's hard, you are my foundation. I will stay with you and seek your will. And boom, that's when it happens, right? That's when God speaks to us. Second thing for Peter, one of his defining experiences that made him who he was, was back in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus calls this common fisherman. He says, I will say to you, you are rock, your rock on this rock, I will build my church. Now in English, we kind of miss this because we don't have all the words. In Greek, Jesus calls Peter the rock Petros. And he says, on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petros and Petra both mean rock, but they mean different kinds of rock. Petros is just a rock solid it's good it's there petra is like a foundation rock you ever go out hiking and you find a foundation rock i mean if you find a petros rock you can pick it up and do what with it you can move it you can throw it you can stick it in your pocket you can take it home put it in your nice little pond your little water fountain you can do all kinds of rock with a petros rock but have you ever come across a foundation rock what can you do with that Nothing, because you can't move it. It is embedded in the soil. It is solid. It's like a piece of granite sticking there. And so Jesus says, Peter, you are going to be my rock on the foundation of the rock. And many theologians believe that that foundation that Peter stood on were those words that he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's why theologians say that. Isn't that what the entire Christian church is built on? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha Omega. He is our all in all. He is the very foundation our lives are established on, and he cannot be moved. So in the second scenario, Peter gets an education. Yeah, Peter, you're a rock. But I'm going to build you on the foundation theology of I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am God. That's the foundation of the church as we know it today. Jesus is God in alignment with Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God incarnate, and he's the Son of God, the living Son of God. That's the foundation of the church. Jesus will then go on to tell Peter this, and all the gates of Hades shall not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and you're going to and what you're going to bind, you are going to bind and you are going to lose things. Backtrack about a year and a half, two years. Peter's out there in a fishing boat, he's casting his net out. On a good day, he pulls in a lot of fish. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a fisherman. I'm not a fisher, fisher catcher person. I'm a fisherman. I fish a lot. I don't always catch. Every once in a while, I'm a fisher catcher. But when I reel that fish in, say I'm taking a, a net of fish in, that's pretty gratifying and satisfying, right? I feel pretty good about life, right? I caught some fish. Yeah, I didn't just fish. I caught some fish. And God tells him, I'm going to take you, and the gates of hell will not overpower. And I'm going to give you, in essence, the keys of the kingdom, and what you bind on earth will be bound, and what you loose on heaven will be bound. If I'm in Peter's shoes, I'm going, oh my goodness, I, I was just catching fish. That's all I was doing, Lord. And now you want me to deal with heaven and hell? Jesus will go on in Pentecost to preach one of the greatest sermons where every pastor envies him. Do you know why? There were like 3,000 plus people that came to salvation. It was bigger than a Billy Graham crusade. Peter did what Jesus said he would do. And then in chapter 10, he would go on to preach to the first Gentile, Cornelius, who came to believe. Peter would take the gospel message of Jesus and present it to the world, to the Jews, that they would come to salvation. And then he would present it to the Gentiles, and they would come to salvation. He would open the gates of heaven for all to come in through Jesus. That had to be a pretty amazing experience for Peter. To be like, Lord, I, what do I do now? You know, I always joke about the fact that if I was president, you'd probably impeach me within the first week because of the decisions I would make. But what would happen if someone came up to you and said, hey, we've been watching you. We really need your help. We're making you president effective immediately. Go fix the economy. Go fix climate change. Go fix the vaccines. Go fix this. Go make the stock portfolios rise up in, in, in finances. How would you feel about that? Hey, we're flying an Air Force One. It's going to pick you up in an hour, pack your bags, and go to Washington. Would you accept it? We would like to dream that we would, wouldn't we? But then our minds would click to what? Oh my goodness, do you remember how, do you know how much pressure is going to be on me? I'm going to have half the nation hating me, well, half likes me, and the next week it's going to flip because I'll make another decision. I'm going to be under pressure. I'm not going to get a lot of sleep. I'm going to be go, 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 go. You know what? I really don't want this job. That's why I elected someone to be in that job. And that's what Jesus is telling Peter. Is going from Simon to Peter. He's like, you are going to be this man. 
And I want you to catch the immensity and overwhelmingness because I think God is telling you and I, you are more than you think you can be because I am the God of the impossible. And I can do the impossible in you as well. You may be nervous and afraid, but I will make it happen for my glory. So whatever limits you've placed upon your life as a Christian, I want you to elevate that about 10,000 times. That Jesus may be saying, you can do great things in my kingdom. You just got to trust and follow me. You got to trust and follow me. Third thing, Matthew 16, 22. One of my most favorite and most convicting parts of the Bible. Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to Jerusalem to do a great thing. He's going to overtake the spiritual leaders and the political leaders. He's going to run for governor. He's going to be the most popular governor in the whole place. He's going to institute welfare and, and charity for all, right? When Jesus tells the apostles he's going to Jerusalem after the two years of training, what is he going to do? He's going to die. And Jesus tells the, the, the apostles, he says, I'm, we're going to go to Jerusalem, boys. And like, yeah, love the town square. Man, they got great falafel down there. <laughs> Don't get here in, in Bethany. It's awesome food. You know, I can get some nice ripe figs. It's, whew, this is going to be great, Jesus. I love, I love Jerusalem. Plus, they're having a Passover. It's going to be a party. And Jesus says, boys, we're going to Jerusalem because I'm going to be tortured and die. Well, that just ruins a vacation, doesn't it? Well, if you know you're going to do that, Jesus, what's your next question? Why? Why would you do that? I mean, if you're God and you know that, wouldn't we want to avoid Jerusalem? And Jesus' confidence says, this is what has to happen. Simon, now we're back to Simon, right? Doesn't what? Get it. And he rebukes Jesus. Remember, we looked at last week, Peter was the only apostle to ever rebuke God. Now that's stepping on some pretty holy ground right there, right? He was the only apostle ever rebuked God. He was also the only apostle that we read of that God rebuked him. You see, it was a nice fair trade. You're going to rebuke me, I'm going to rebuke you, right? So Peter looks at Jesus and says, uh-uh, that ain't happening. And here's the words that Jesus says in Matthew 16, 23. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me. Now it's not even Simon or Peter, it's what? Satan. Now, if you're a man of God, how far can you fall to be called Satan? You feel Peter's heart go. You are a stumbling block for me, Peter, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Now, again, put yourself in Peter's sandals. You're following, you're following Jesus. You're sometimes called Simon. You're sometimes called Peter. You're trying. You're doing good. And then Jesus tells you we're going on a vacation to Jerusalem, and, and he's going to die, and there's going to be mass chaos and, and wailing and crying in the streets, and all this stuff's going to happen. And you tell Jesus, ah, I don't want to go. I don't want to ride that train. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, that was the bottom of the barrel that Peter hit, right? So here's the question, kids. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? You've just been called the enemy of God, Satan, the adversary of God. It doesn't get worse than this. And again, you're standing around the other, other 11 boys, right? This is a public shaming. How do you respond? 
how do you respond if you're in a group of people and you were called out for thinking something wrong? It's not an easy place, is it? The feathers, the back of the hairs, and the back of the neck come up. Either you want to look for some place to run and hide, or you want to what? Come on. Bring it. Peter has to realize something here. He has to realize one of the things that he knows he's the leader, but here's one of the fallacies of leader. As a leader, you need to know your limits. Because oftentimes leaders do what? Their head is bigger than their leadership, right? I can get away with this. I can do this. Peter had to realize his limits as a leader in God's kingdom, and he had to realize the pecking order. We joke about pecking order our house because we've got the rooster, we've got the chickens, we've got the dog, we've got Christy and I. There's a pecking order of the animals, right? You ever have dogs? If you have multiple dogs, you know there's a pecking order, right? One is dominant, the others kind of follow, the last one always tucks his tail in peace no matter what happens, right? <laughs> there's a pecking order. I mean, this is just real life stuff. Peter had to realize in the kingdom of God, there was a pecking order. God has placed in the church a pecking order of leadership. He's placed in the marriage a pecking order. Now, when it gets out of whack, it's messed up. We often need to realize our pecking order place where God has us, whether it's in the church, it's in ministry, it's in marriage, it's in the family. We need to understand that because otherwise, there's a good chance God is going to what? Humble us because we're a little bit mightier than we, our pecking order is, right? I love roosters for that reason. We have another rooster, we had one before. But roosters always overinstate their pecking order, don't they? They think they could take on an elephant, right? You ever be around a rooster and he gets a little, huh, like the joke, cocky? He comes at you and he's got those little spurs on the back of his feet and he's jumping up and he's flapping, he's coming at you. You know what I learned with our first rooster? They don't really hurt you. It's kind of funny to see them jump at your feet and try and scratch them. You just kind of kick them away and they're done. It's really pretty easy. But the rooster thinks he can take you on. He doesn't understand his pecking order. He's just trying to protect the hens. Sometimes we're like that. We get this pecking order like Peter did, like, hey, I can tell God what to do. I can step out of my pecking order and be more and give my opinions more than what I want. And God will discipline us in that moment, won't he? Some of us already had that fun experience, right? But why does God discipline us? To remind us of our place in the kingdom of God, to remind us that we are servants, not called to be served. That God is number one and we are not. And the Bible tells us very clearly to place the needs of others where? Above our own needs. Even to the point of loving our enemies and providing and taking care of them. It's a humiliating, hard experience to understand the reality of our pecking order if we are struggling with arrogance and pride and wanting to be more than we really are. It's a humbling experience. That's what Peter had to go through. And here's the beauty of what Peter did. When Jesus calls him Satan, Peter backtracked, but then he turned back to God. Peter held on to that first thing that when God said, aren't you guys going to leave also? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, where would we go? Peter holds on to that Petra foundation of his, of his faith, and he allows God to rebuke him, to, we call it, discipline him spiritually, because God says he will discipline those 
whom he what? Whom he loves. It's coming because he loves us and wants us to be in the right place, in the right mindset. He'll discipline us. It will happen. And when Peter was disciplined, you know what he did? He eventually bent the knee. And here's what happens when you're disciplined. There's almost a betrayal that happens, right? Because you have that temptation to either fight or run away. Peter chose to stay and be submissive and then make an even stronger commitment to Jesus Christ than before. And that's the beauty of experience. When God allows you to go that, that experience, that discipline experience, and he disciplines you because he loves you, if you allow God to do it and your heart seeks continuing after Jesus, you will come back a stronger Christian man or woman than you were before. Because now you understand more fully. Does that make sense? Now it's more clear. And you know your place is like, I can live and minister here. This is where you want me. I'm not going to overstep my bounds again. I don't want to be called Satan in front of the guys again, right? Peter also would go on to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah. Again, this is the pivotal moment. We'll kind of close things up here. Where the Zechariah says, the flock will flee. And what's it referring to? At the crucifixion, the struggle of Jesus... Zachariah gave the prophecy that the flock will flee. Well, Peter comes up once again. He hasn't quite got it yet. And he says, Lord, I will even go and die for you. And Jesus says, well, that's great, Pete, but you know what? You're going to deny me three times. Oh, no, Lord, I wouldn't. You ever overestimate your spiritual strength in God? Where again, you think you can do more than you really can? When the rooster crowed that next morning, what had Peter done? Denied Jesus three times. And here's where we see some of the humanity in Peter close to us. Here's where we see the realness of Peter's life and God working in him. We already saw the one where he's called Satan, and he kind of comes back pretty quick, right? When Peter denies Christ three times, does he bounce back immediately? <laughs> Jesus is crucified, he dies. Peter and the boys are hiding out in an upper room, and their big spiritual game plan is what? Let's go fishing. Let's go back to what we know before Jesus. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I just betrayed and backstabbed Jesus. I, I don't know what to do. All I know what to do is go back to that life before Christ that I was just catching fish. Have you ever had someone close to you you've backstabbed or betrayed and realized the immensity, the weight of what you've just done? It is humbling, isn't it? And sometimes we, like Peter, in that place is like, God, I, I don't even know what to do. The whole, it's all lost. Jesus would come to restore Peter, right? We read that story later on where Jesus asked Peter three times, what? Do you love me? And Peter answers three times, I love you. That whole imagery is, is that God restored Peter back to him once for every time he denied and betrayed him. That's pretty cool, right? Don't you think God will do that for us too? Every time you and I have betrayed God, if we allow God and we continue to seek after him, God will restore us every time we fail. 
if we just turn back to seek God. Here's what happened to that experience in Peter's life. When Jesus restored Peter with those three questions of, do you love me? Then go and feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. When Jesus restored him, Peter came back with a fervor and a commitment a hundred times stronger than the first time Jesus said, follow me. Do you know that? Because that's when Peter finally understood the relationship between him and Jesus and the importance of that relationship. And he came back a thousand times more committed to Christ than he ever was before. And then we come into the, in the book of Acts and the Pentecost. And Peter preaches and the crowd goes wild and souls come into heaven. Thousands. But you see the experience Peter had to go through? Because what had to happen to Peter is he had to be emptied of himself. He had to see his real humanity in the mirror before God could really use him. Because Peter was proud and arrogant and impulsive. And he had to understand how God could take those qualities and make him stronger. We close with John 21. After all this happens, he's experiencing Peter's life to change him. Jesus says this to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, Peter. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now, Jesus said this, signifying the kind of death that Peter would glorify God in. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, catch this, this is key. When he had spoken this, Jesus said to Peter, you know what he said? Follow me. Didn't, Peter, didn't Jesus already ask Peter to follow him when he was fishing with nets? And now that Jesus restores Peter and calls him Peter and says, Peter, what he's actually doing here is saying, Peter, you get it now. So I'm going to tell you the future. You're going to, when you were younger, you used to do what you want, when you want, how you wanted, any way you wanted. Now? that you're mine, you're going to be led astray to places you don't want to go. You don't have a choice. But I'm telling you this, Peter, because now you understand. Because you're not sold out for you, you're sold out for me. And now I'm telling you this because I know you're willing to go there. Without question. And did Peter go there? Yeah. Do you think he fought when they nailed him to the upside-down cross? No. Because he says, I'm not worthy to be like my Lord. You need to crucify me upside-down. And I think he allowed them to do it without fighting back, which had to be a whole freaky thing for the Romans because they didn't understand that. Because usually you had to hold the prisoners down. But after Jesus restores Peter again, he says those famous words, which are what? Follow me. This is an affirmation of faith in Peter, and it's a good thing for you and I because when you and I have failed Christ in all of our failings, in our mindset, our heart attitude, our actions, and God restores us. Do you know what two words God says to you and I again? Follow me. But this time, it's with more intensity, more trueness, more realness, more authenticity, more understanding. And it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? We'll wrap up here because we realize that in those two years of training, Peter had to empty himself of himself and fill himself with what? with the ways of God. 
It's the same thing for you and I. But hopefully in this morning, you're encouraged that if you have failed, if you've been apathetic, if you have wandered away or backslidden or whatever you have done, God will restore you if you just turn your eyes to him. And he'll say those beautiful two words to you once again with more impact. It's kind of like, now that you know, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your many blessings. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us in the depths of our heart where we really need to hear, Lord. Father, that the words of mine that are not of you would be forgotten, but the words that you have for us to draw clear to our heart, to apply, to understand, to, to be changed by you, to be willing to go through these experiences and stay faithful to you, and if not, to repent and come back to you, will move us and change us into your likeness. That through the experiences that we go through in life, Lord, we see that you are using those for a good reason, to make us Christ-like and to mature us. Holy Spirit, help us not to forsake the God that we love, our first love in Jesus, but to always seek him out, to make that stance that you are the Christ, the living Son of God. Where else do we have to go? There is no place. And Lord, in this, we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.